Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today, it is February 4th of 2015, and today our guest is Dr. Deborah Rothschild. Uh, she's an adjunct professor at NYU and a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City, and we're going to talk about relational psychoanalysis and harm reduction psychotherapy. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, uh, Deborah Rothschild, is with us. We're going to bring her on right now. Deborah, how are you doing this afternoon? Good, thanks. How are you? Well, it's great to have you on the show. I was just reading one of your papers on relational psychoanalysis and harm reduction therapy and, uh, you know, how it's uh, important to have a relationship with the client instead of being an authority figure. Tell us a little bit, what is relational psychoanalysis? How does it differ from Freudian classical analysis? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the the sort of compact way to say it is relational analysis is a two-person psychology, whereas more classical Freudian is considered more of a one-person psychology. What that means is that in a more classical Freudian analysis, um, the analyst is considered kind of like a blank screen. Like who the analyst is doesn't matter as much because the patient will be projecting transference, you know, projecting on to the analyst whatever is needed. And also there's um, a modality of free association where the whatever the patient brings up is what is what is talked about, and the patient um, is, is sort of then free associates from one thing to the next. In a relational psychoanalysis, um, there is a recognition that there are two full human beings in the room and that the analyst is also a full human being and has reactions and thoughts and feelings also. And it's a more of a collaborative effort. Um, and that reminds me a little bit of harm reduction therapy when we talk about collaboration. Um, and also in relational psychoanalysis, it is what happens in the relationship, sort of the process, um, as much as the content as of what what matters is what matters. So that, for example... Um, we will recognize that simply treating somebody with respect and is a whole new experience, and that can be sort of talked about, brought to the fore, how the analyst treats the patient is very important, what interactions they have. Um, many things also maybe cannot be put into words but come out in the dynamics between them in a certain whatever it may be, um, in an act, something that gets enacted if if your patient is maybe putting you in the role of an authority figure or is um, rebelling against something or whatever it may be, those things can sort of be detected, recognized as a pattern, put into words, and then figured out in terms of what they what kind of meaning they have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what's so. the difference between uh, object relations and a drive-oriented approach? 
Well, a drive-oriented approach would be based more on um, biological drives, um, feeling like people have, you know, a sex drive, an aggression drive. And object relations is based more in the idea that development is um, uh, influenced by the our early relationships. We use the word object really to mean person. Um, so it's sort of about, you know, the kinds of early relationships we have form this have much, much influence on forming who we become. Okay. Now, classical Freudian analysis didn't seem very successful with substance users. And why is that, and what is the difference uh, with the relational approach and the harm reduction approach? Sure. I think that was because, um, mostly because analysts didn't raise issues themselves because of the whole free association technique. So if there was something that somebody either didn't want to talk about, didn't want to address, was afraid to talk about maybe, or maybe wasn't um, aware of as a problem or something, it wouldn't have come up. Um, The other issue about it is that Freudian classical analysis is really uh, geared towards people who are have some sort of modicum of mental health because it is sort of based in arousing some anxiety so that conflicts can be looked at and resolved. And and I think for somebody who relies on substances to calm their anxiety and isn't really very good at talking about what psychologically ails them, um, Freudian analysis could do more harm than good because raising anxiety could lead somebody to go out and use more drugs to calm themselves because um, people have been doing that for a long time as their solution to anxiety or distress um, often have lost the ability to put things into words. Mm-hmm. And so it, 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 they had exactly sort of opposite effects, and so so it would be pretty detrimental. Yeah, you mentioned the difference between a, a verbal person and an active person. Could you expand on that? Sure. Um One of the things that um, I think can happen when, I mean, people use substances for all different reasons, but frequently people who become dependent on a substance, the people who end up in my office, are people who used a substance not for recreational fun, certainly, but because they don't need to be in my office for help, but um, who used it because it, it felt like a solution to a problem. It feels like it either something or calms something or helps something that feels like a psychological problem to begin with. I've had many patients who said to me, I tried this and this drug and I felt like I could function for the first time. Or I discovered this drug and I felt like I could be me for the first time. So many people start with some kind of distress and Many, many people who become dependent on substances also have suffered a lot of trauma in their life. Again, not everyone, of course. Um, And all of these things sort of um, can impair our ability, particularly trauma, to find words for emotional experiences. And then when when one finds an action, like taking a substance, to calm uh, really negative and distressing feelings, we don't have to talk about it. It takes it away as opposed to, let's say, somebody who hasn't discovered that as a solution, may go to a friend or a parent or a loved one and talk out the problem. And so they find their words then, and that's the solution. That makes things feel better. So 
it's, an, it's a non-interpersonal solution and a non-verbal solution to soothe with the substance, and then that ability becomes kind of atrophied, you might say. And so then you lose even more of that ability. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, now, when you do harm reduction, when you do harm reduction therapy, uh, do you require abstinence, or what is the goal? No, no. The goal is, um, well, I would say the goal is to reduce harm in any way possible, but the goal, specific goal for the specific person is arrived at together. I always think of it as a collaborative effort, and um, I see what my what my patient wants to do. Um, small steps may lead to larger steps. Small steps may be good enough in and of themselves. So for me, harm reduction really is exactly what it says, to reduce the harm to the person who's using and others around them. Um, so it may be about not drinking and driving. It may be about using clean needles. It may be about abstinence, absolutely. It may be about only using on weekends or counting drinks or any number of things. And I, one of the things that I'm always very clear about with people, not I don't mean my patients, I mean the general public, is that abstinence is part of harm reduction. Um, when mm-hmm. people ask me, are you doing harm reduction or abstinence with this patient, it really uh, pushes my buttons because <laughs> certainly abstinence reduces harm. <laughs> you know? So it, there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum of use and there's a spectrum of goals. And everyone is an individual. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just it's easier for some people to quit completely and it's easier for some people to uh, get their use under control. Different people are different. Absolutely. And some people need to experiment before they find out which is easiest for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think everybody needs to experiment a little to find yeah. out which is easiest. <laughs> exactly. Right. There's no way to know that intuitively, a priori. That's right. Um, Absolutely. So, there are some people who come to my office saying, I've been trying to moderate for years and I can't do it, so they've already done the experimenting. And some people who come in and say, I really want to learn to moderate, and some are successful at that, and some decide that that's way too hard and that they they decide to be abstinent. Mm-hmm. Well, often people need to learn techniques to moderate, you know, because yeah. they're yeah. just, you know, they're just sitting there and say, I'm going to moderate, and then they don't have any plan, they don't have any techniques, and there are some techniques, so even people have tried to moderate for years on their own, now, if you introduce them to a range of techniques, um, in my experience, I have found that basically everyone is capable of moderating some people find it a huge effort and it's very difficult and it's much easier to abstain Mm -hmm. exactly and that's why it's their decision then to abstain absolutely if people come in and they say oh i've been trying to moderate and i ask them what they've done and this kind of amorphous you know sort of vague i'm just going to use less isn't is very hard to do um so yes i do a lot of very, very specific coaching on drink counting and planning and how many each time and when and how often and you know frequency intensity planning precisely if you're going to have two drinks over the course of a night when in the night do you want to have those drinks? Um, are you somebody who needs to who wants to have a drink as soon as you walk in? Um, or are you somebody who can socialize for a long time and save your drink for a glass of wine with dinner? Are you somebody who uh, you know, what are you going to order beforehand? I do a lot of role play with people, ordering a non-alcoholic drink at the bar, imagining their drinking buddy standing there. What's going to happen? What What happens when their friend says, aren't you drinking? 
Mm. You know, a lot of very, very specific work. Mm. Well, we know moderate drinking is possible because we see it all the time in our culture. Mm -hmm. We see most people that drink alcohol uh, you know, are moderate. The people that are immoderate are actually the minority. But I mean, are there yeah. are there demon drugs like uh, heroin, crack, cocaine that no one can ever moderate? Everybody's always addicted to. No, I don't think the demon lies in the drug. <laughs> um, I think that the well, I don't want to call anything a demon, really. But no, I think that there are drugs which perhaps because of their biochemistry, might be easier for some people to get addicted to. But even there, we're matching biochemistry with biochemistry. Um, I think, you know, the whole uh, Vietnam vets who used uh, heroin over in Vietnam and came back here and most of them stopped using is proof of that. There's so much um, psychological and environmental influence that I don't think, mm-hmm. uh, it's not about the drug. It's about the person and the environment and what's going on. So, no. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me, what got you interested in doing harm reduction psychotherapy? Well, I first became interested in doing substance use work early on. I started with a master's in counseling psych and was working in what was called employee assistance programs in corporate America, um, working mm-hmm. with employees. And those grew out of occupational alcohol programs. And so they were very much steeped in um helping employees in a company who develop substance use problems and helping managers with how to help their employees. And so I had to learn more about it, and then it sort of became an expertise. And at the same time, I was going back to school for my Ph.D. in clinical psychology and then worked at substance use clinics because that happened to be my expertise, did my dissertation in it. And the I think I, I was practicing what I was learning as a clinical psychologist which turned out to be not really the um, the cultural stereotype of what we were supposed to do with people who were addicted. You know, there was this. Mm-hmm. This was in the day when there was. It was a very, very much a disease approach. Twelve-step rehab programs were the way to go, and those worked for some people, but for a lot of people, they didn't. And so I was sort of, I think, just working instinctively as a psychologist, and then. Somebody told me that what I was doing was harm reduction therapy. I didn't know what that was and um, got interested in it and discovered that it was, in fact, what I was doing, but I wanted to learn more, and there we went. Do you think uh, 12-step programs can be harmful to some people? Um, I know you do, and I, I believe that they have probably harmed some people. I think that if the the only way they're harmful, I think, is if people feel forced into them. I think if somebody goes to a 12-step program knowing that they're there to check it out and see if it's helpful for them, because I do believe 12-step programs are very helpful for some people, um, if if they go feeling free to either use it or not, or to use some of it to take what they can use and leave the rest of it behind, but they like the fellowship, then no, it's not going to be harmful. But I think if they feel forced into it, I think the notion of forcing anybody to do anything that they're not comfortable with is harmful. Well, I very much agree with that. Boom is mm-hmm. the the coercive aspect. And there's been such a huge amount of coercive machinery that's been built into our society to force the 12 steps on people against their will. Uh, that's a huge problem, as I see it. 
Mm-hmm. I when I, I remember back when I was on internship and in, in psychology training that we were told that if we had a patient who was using too much alcohol, we had to tell them the only way they could stay in treatment would be to go to AA. And it was sort of mm-hmm. like this attitude, I think, that the mental health professional would foist the alcohol part onto AA, which was supposed to cure it, and then we could do the rest mm-hmm. as if we could separate that. And so the mm-hmm. only way the person could get any kind of help would be to go to AA, and there were no other options offered. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I've often said, you know, that there are other groups that are basically well, AA is basically a religion because it is all about God curing your disease. Um, that's my take. There are other groups like the Hare Krishnas, the Mormons. They don't drink. You can join that religion. That's mm-hmm. a perfectly reasonable uh, alternative to AA. I always thought. Mm-hmm. Not to mention smart recovery or moderation management or one of those. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Women for Sobriety, Ham's Harm Reduction. You know, right. we're all out there as alternatives. That's right. But That's right. you know, why not? I mean, I found uh, I have good friends in the Hare Krishna, so I find that they're, you know, they're they're less cultish to me than the twelve steppers are. Really? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. So. Tell me a little bit more about what harm reduction therapy does that's different from the traditional therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the biggest difference is that the, you mean traditional therapy for substance use, I take it, when you say yes. uh, different from traditional therapy. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest difference is that in traditional substance use work, the focus is almost only on the substance use. There's sort of the goal is to help the person stop using or sometimes make the person stop using. Um, Whereas in harm reduction therapy, it's not, I think the therapy is not just about reducing harm, but it's about the whole person's life. It's about health and happiness and well-being. And it's about two people engaging together in a collaborative effort for one person's health and happiness. And that's really the biggest mm-hmm. difference. There's very much, I think, an authoritarian approach in uh, the traditional model. I am the expert. I will tell you what you need to do. You need to go to these groups. You need to learn this about your, quote, disease. If you don't do what I tell you, your disease will progress and you will die. And that's what I'm here to do. As compared to something that feels much more like psychotherapy or like relational psychoanalysis to me with two people um, working together in a room to sort of explore what one of them wants and needs to be better and to feel better, I mean, not to be better, to feel better, to, to get better, to function and in, in multiply better ways, however they choose to do that, whatever they find is distressing or interfering with their reaching their goals in life. And so it's a much more comprehensive um, approach. Uh, it's based in um, not a non-authoritarian model, but a mutually collaborative one of respect for the individuality of both people in the room. I think that's mm-hmm. those are the mm-hmm. biggest differences for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you just yeah. mentioned progression, uh, which was the the old standard model that you had this right. disease that progressed and you died, and that was it. And unless you got this intervention, um, yeah, you're going to die. But that's not true, is it? Don't we know that now that spontaneous remission is the most common outcome? Mm-hmm. 
Yes, it is. Which is not to say, though, that some people do not die of alcoholism or overdose or, you know, any of mm-hmm. the other um, multiple terrible side effects of addictive use. So some people do die, but it's not inevitable. Mm-hmm. You know, my whole approach, the thing I want to do is to emphasize, you know, working with spontaneous remission, you know, the strengths that people have that will help them outgrow you know, substance use problems is what I think mm-hmm. that we need to support and strengthen, and that is actually mm-hmm. what is going to help people get better. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something also I think that in the harm reduction approach, which is, as I said, a collaborative effort, we are implicitly strengthening somebody's resources by expecting them to be able to collaborate with us, as opposed to a more authoritarian model where we're treating somebody as though they are helpless and we have to tell them what to do. And so that's what I meant earlier by the relationship matters, what happens sort of non-verbally in the process of the relationship, in the dynamics of the relationship are very important. So if just in the process we involve somebody in an exploration, um, we're strengthening certain capacities in them. One of the things that I think is very important is opening up curiosity about, them, about uh, oneself wanting to look at oneself, wanting to understand why we make the choices we do. And so if you're just sort of telling somebody about themselves, then they're not curious about themselves, um, and their their own autonomy isn't being strengthened. Whereas if we're opening curiosity together, it's a whole other aspect of self that's being engaged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been uh, associated with Andrew Tatarski for quite a while. Now, how did you meet Andrew, and what are you guys doing together? Oh, God, I've known Andrew for years and years and years. Um, We, uh, God, we met, I guess, uh, in two different ways around the same time. We were both founding members of the New York State Psychological Association Division on Addictions, and we're both still very actively involved in that group. We're both on the executive committee. And that is, as I said, a division of the State Psychological Association um, for psychologists who are interested in addictions. And we put on conferences once every two years, and we have a newsletter, and we sort of um, together run the the division, which has members across the state, us and there's a group of about maybe 12 of us who do that. So I've worked with Andrew in that way. Um, I met him originally when I was doing my dissertation, and I was collecting data at an intensive outpatient program I was working at, which then kind of fell apart and closed, and I still needed subjects, so he was working at a different IOP as the clinical director there, and I, um, somebody told me about him. I contacted him and asked if I could come in and interview his patients for my dissertation study, and he did, and that, that was how we first, first met. And since then, we've presented together. We've been on committees together. Uh, we're on some harm reduction committees together. We do some... Uh, we're about to do a colloquium for our. We're both involved with the same analytic institute at NYU, and we're about to do a colloquium together for them. So it's a very informal. We don't really formally work together, but we do a lot of projects together. Okay. Um, are there any other topics you would like to talk about this afternoon? Um, gee, I don't know. Um, I think for me, what's really important is how is is how the um, 
the harm reduction sort of turn in substance use treatment is opening up substance use treatment for good clinicians, good good therapists to to feel comfortable doing it. And I think it's really important that people know that because for a long time, I think people who were good therapists felt that they couldn't treat substance users because they felt that there was a certain protocol they were supposed to follow, this kind of authoritarian teaching, you know, psychoeducation, go to 12-step groups, do this, do that, and then you'll be well kind of model and, and you must be abstinent <laughs> in order to get help. People, good clinicians often weren't comfortable with that. They thought that wasn't, they don't know how to do that, so they would refer out. And the whole notion that you mm-hmm. had to, Give up the thing that was most troubling you before you could get help for the thing that was troubling you made so little sense. So with Mm -hmm. harm reduction, there's room for good therapists to come in to do the work. Um, You don't have to give up your symptom in order to get help. If, If using is a symptom, and sometimes it is, a symptom of not being able to cope with in less harmful ways. So there's an understanding that this is a solution, that this works, except it has terrible side effects. That using a drug really, really works, except using too much of it has really bad side effects, and so we need to find something else that works. Mm -hmm. And that's good therapy. You know, in the same way that if somebody's, you know, cutting themselves or somebody's holing up in their apartment and not going out with their friends because they're too depressed and that's their solution or they're, you know, there are any number of solutions, staying home because they're too scared to go out, we find some way around that. You know, we cope, we figure out what's causing it, what's wrong, and then we find some way around it. Why should it be so different if somebody's using too much cocaine? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that uh, so many times, when I was seeking therapy, um, you know, and I was actually seeking help for depression. And, you know, if I mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, if I told the truth and said that I drank alcohol sometimes, and, you know, then it would be a, a war between me and the therapist. The therapist would suddenly start beating me over the head. You have to go to 12-step programs. You have to do this. We can't talk about anything except how you're going to join AA and be an AA for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I don't want... a damn thing to do with it because it's a religious cult and I hate it and it makes me drink more and I want to do therapy for depression and it's like no we have to talk about how you're going to go to AA and you know after about five sessions it's like you're fired because you're totally wasting my time you haven't mm-hmm. done a damn thing except argue with me and fight with me mm-hmm. <laughs> that's sad and that was, right. yeah it wasn't once it was over and over and over again because these people had been told that this is what you have to do is fight with your client and confront them and force them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Of course, it this never was a to anybody to say to you, maybe you're drinking a lot because you're depressed, so let's help with your depression, and maybe then you'll stop drinking so much? Mm, no. And, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, no. On, on a number of these occasions, it was interesting because, you know, I was engaging in, you know, I had greatly moderated my drinking, so I was actually sometimes at the moderate drinking limits and say, you know, yeah, yeah I'm having 14 drinks a week and no more. What's and, the problem? Uh, and what's the pro- well, the problem is that you you had an alcoholic problem in the past. You went through treatment in the past for addiction. So that means you're addicted forever. And unless you're totally abstinent, it means my only job is to force you into AA. Uh, such <laughs> terrible treatment. It's so sad that so many people received exactly that kind of message. 
so terribly sad. And then so much, so much distress went untreated, depression, right? I mean, you couldn't get help for your depression then with that kind of attitude. Ooh, no, no. Finally, after years, um, I read some Albert Ellis, and mm-hmm. I read some of the uh, Greco-Roman Stoic philosopher Epictetus. Epictetus is really useful. Um, Ellis, too. Uh, Epictetus is my favorite therapist, though. <laughs> you know, and he lived over two thousand years ago. But he's mm-hmm. the one that really taught me how to, you know, take control of my own brain. And you know, you don't have to make yourself miserable. You can choose to be happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing that I'd like to talk about, if possible, is the connection between um, trauma. And and substance use therapy and harm reduction therapy, because oh, yeah. um, I think it's a very important connection in terms of of um, the treatment and sometimes a, really a difference between whether treatment can work or not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's because I think one of the things that that's so important that people don't realize is how much trauma can lead to what in relational psychoanalysis we think of as dissociation meaning a sort of um, harder split lines between different ways of being in the world. You know, we all have different self-states, different ways of being in the world at different times. Um, Mm -hmm. And with trauma, the way to survive trauma is to sort of make the trauma happen to not me. You know, it's not touching me. It's not touching my Mm -hmm. real self. Wonderful, wonderful survival mechanism. But when that becomes rigidified as a way of being, then there are too many not me ways not me states yep, yep. in the body, you know. So what mm-hmm. can happen then also is if somebody's been very traumatized and they come to my office and they say, you know, I'm really drinking too much and I really think I need to moderate my drinking and we make all kinds of plans for them to moderate their drinking, if they're so split, if they're so dissociated, that it that the part of them that they drink, let's say, to medicate the trauma, the results of the trauma, the traumatized part of them may not be consciously aware, may not be present while they're making all these plans Mm -hmm. to moderate their drinking. So we have to Mm -hmm. be very, very aware of sort of bringing in the parts of the self that are cut off. Because, of course, the part of the self that wants to feel healthier is the part that's going to be sitting in the therapy room with me. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very easy, I think, then for therapists, and particularly for substance abuse counselors, to disparage the part that uses and to collude with mm-hmm. the part that wants to get well. We don't like the, mm-hmm. where you used the word demon before, that demon who drinks. Yep, you know, yep. Let's kill off that demon part of you who drinks, rather than realizing that part of, who drinks is not at all a demon, but probably a very hurt part who's, who most needs to be in therapy with us. And mm-hmm. so it's really important to to be open to inviting that part in, to hearing what that part has to say, and to then getting that part to agree to the plans to moderate or stop or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trauma is such has such a huge impact on substance use, and it's been it's been far too ignored in the past. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have too much of this biological model of you have these bad genes, and as soon as the substance hits the genes, then you're addicted, boom, and, you know, mm-hmm. nothing else involved, and that's just not mm-hmm. true. Right. I think so, too. Exactly. It's so blaming, then. 
Or then there's the backlash the other way where then in rehabs, they realize they started to think everybody's traumatized and started doing all the psychodrama and sort of awakening this trauma that had been sort of successfully dissociated for good reasons, and then people leave mm-hmm. rehab very traumatized, very raw. They're not really equipped to handle what they're bringing out. So mm-hmm. that can be problematic as well. You, know, you need mm-hmm. to be very careful in dealing with trauma. Uh, we do, indeed. And, uh, you know, a lot of, well, most rehabs in my experience, uh, they're about making money. They're not about making people better. Yeah. Especially the inpatient Yeah, I hope program. that's changing. I mean, it seems to be changing a little. I hope. <laughs> you know, um, I, I have spoken with people who are some. Yeah, yeah. Things are improving. They're, I think, hiring more mental health professionals who have training uh, in doing real therapy as opposed to just people who are sort of in recovery and then imposing their own means of recovery onto the next generation. Mm-hmm. But it's it's slow and sporadic and intermittent. But by and large, the old standard model of uh, 28 days inpatient, uh, residential, confined away from your environment, uh, and that's going to be, I think that's just wrong for most mm-hmm. people. You know, the outpatient has so many advantages. Not Not only is it cheaper, of course, but, you know, you have to learn to deal with your environment. You can't be isolated exactly. in this vacuum from your environment for 30 days and then get thrown back and all your uh, friends on the street they are used shooting up heroin and say, mm-hmm. okay, you can survive now. Right. Exactly, exactly. You're not learning to survive in your environment at all. I mean, I think for some people it's helpful just to get a break, to get a sort of breath of fresh air by being away. But the real work is always going to begin once they get out. There's so much relapse on the way home, especially from people who were had an intervention and were forced in or something. But, mm-hmm. you know, for some people, I think they, they do feel like they need to just get away just to sort of, as I said, just take a breath. But then mm-hmm. it's a breath, and then you come back, and then you need to, to really do the real therapy and the real hard work. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a few programs that uh, that uh, transition people from an inpatient into an outpatient, and have, they have it ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a lot more sensible than just say, yeah. "Okay, you did 28 days, you're cured now," and send them out. Yeah. And then you know, the no worst sense. thing they do is relapse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. If well, if you're a drunkard, it's not so bad. You wind up dead drunk. But if you've been using opiates. And especially if nobody taught you your tolerance is down. You know, they always told me in rehab, you will pick up exactly where you left off, which is a terrible oh. message. And then, you terrible know, people message. shoot up the same amount of heroin, and then, boom, they're dead of overdose. They're dead. Oh, my God, yeah, that's terrible, terrible. Yeah, very scary. Right. Either that or they tell them your, um, your quote, disease is growing while you're in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, your disease is progressing even while you're abstinent. While you're sitting in the meeting, your disease is doing push-up push-ups in the parking lot. You know that <laughs> right, <one. laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That never made a lot of sense to me. Although I, you know, I have to say, I know that for some people who feel that they would have died without it, whatever you know, if they believe it and it works, it works. And I wouldn't take that away from the ten percent of people for whom that's helpful. 
Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's different, and if something's helpful for somebody, I'm. Who am I to say it's not? Mm-hmm. Well, in the so, same way that uh, I don't I mean, want them to impose their AA on me, I don't want to take. I don't want to impose my belief on them. Well, yeah, ideally, we uh, do. Uh, you know, we do a controlled study, and we see if the control group does better than the group that gets the treatment. If the control group does better than the group that gets the treatment, there's a problem with the treatment. You, you shouldn't follow that path of treatment. Well, you know, I would say that about a pill, but I wouldn't say that about a lifestyle because I think everybody may find a different way of using that lifestyle. And as long as we don't have to have an either-or, if five people get better with the treatment and 95 don't, why would we take that treatment away from the five people who got better with it? Let's just find 95 other treatments for those 95 other people and make sure that everybody finds some way to get well. Well, then that, that's the difficulty <laughs> is identifying the people who are going to benefit before they get the treatment. If we could do that, then we that could match everybody with the right treatment. But right. That, there's, there's no way to do yeah. that. No. I mean, well, so, but there is a way of saying, try a meeting, and if you like it, good. And if you don't, okay, we'll try something. You know, try this meeting, try that meeting, try a smart meeting, try an AA meeting, try just coming to me and not, you know, see what you like, see what works. Fortunately, they're all out there, and they're all free, and they're all, you know, so mm-hmm, you can try it, and mm-hmm. if you don't like it, doesn't help. Fine. Well, you know, it's, well, now that's a different thing than treatment, though, because now we're talking mm-hmm. about, a group, a fellowship, right. if we want to call that, call it that. Right. But it's not, it's not a treatment. I mean, That's people in their own right. private lives, they're free to try anything. You can go to AA, you can go to Smart, you can go to church, you can go to the Hare Krishnas, uh, you can join a book club, you can join a knitting club, mm-hmm. a sewing club. You can try all kinds of activities, and right. you know, maybe you find that the your Wednesday night sewing club is really good to keep you from drinking because you really mm-hmm. are having great fun there. Uh, mm-hmm. That's great, but that's you know that's part of, that's all personal choices. But you know, if we talk about treatments, then I mm-hmm. think that we do need to have treatments that uh, demonstrate that they are better than the untreated control group. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Right. right. Absolutely. It's but, hard to do those kinds of experiments, I guess, that kind of real, you know, real-world experiments comparing different things. Because, again, because people are so individual, too. So it would be very hard to control. You'd have to do such huge numbers because different people do respond better to different things. And the same mm-hmm. way that some people respond better to a more analytic approach and some people respond better to a cognitive behavioral approach. And, I mean, most of my all my patients get an integrated approach where I'm doing cognitive behavioral work but thinking analytically and knowing, you know, the analytic part is knowing that I need to involve all the parts of the patient in the cognitive behavioral work that I'm doing. But, you know, some people respond much better to homework assignments and something very structured and everybody responds differently. So it's very hard to, to sort of figure out what works best for people in general as compared to, as you said, treatment matching would be great, but that it's it's been pretty elusive, I think, so far. Well, there's a number of things involved. I was talking to a couple of people that uh, got um, listed as evidence-based medicine uh, on the SAMHSA registry, and I was asking them, you know, why did you only study your treatment 
against another treatment instead of an untreated control group. And both mm-hmm. of them said that uh, the Institutional Review Board refused to allow them to do an untreated control group. Uh-huh. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, weird uh, politics involved in all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, and, but you know what? It, to do that kind of thing, mm-hmm. I think you'd have to find people who hadn't even entered your study because as soon as they fill out a questionnaire, as soon as they're part of your study, they're no longer an untreated control group. They've already had attention paid to them. They've already identified some things that the really untreated control group hasn't. Mm-hmm. So it could be that just that initial contact, just having somebody talk to them and be interested, already would constitute treatment. It's not truly untreated control. And because we know that that's very curative. Relationship is curative. Interest in somebody else, you know, interest in them is, is curative. Mm-hmm. Now, as long as we're most, on this topic, most therapy wanna... research, sorry? But go ahead. Go ahead with what you're No, saying. I was going to say most therapy research comes down to that the relationship is the most important part of the treatment. Well, that is true. And, you know, the, the therapeutic alliance is so hugely important. Um, and we're seeing that more and more, which is why it's so awful that, uh, you know, therapists are taught to attack people with substance use disorders and, you know, tell them, you know, get into 12-step treatment and, you know, just confront an attack instead of, you know, and destroy all therapeutic alliance. Uh, And that's exactly the opposite of what ought to be going on. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because most you know, of the time I, I was seeking therapy. Uh, really quickly, most of the time I was seeking therapy, I was in Minnesota, and the Minnesota model rules Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So it's a really mm-hmm. bad place to seek therapy if you have substance use disorder. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. But what I was going to say was I think, you know, it feeds on itself then too because that attitude that you were describing, of course, is going to lead people to then lie about their substance use because they know they're just going to get attacked if they say they used. And so then substance users get this reputation of being liars, which is a terrible Mm -hmm. thing. Now, some of that is sometimes also a a function of dissociation, of really a lack of awareness. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, of course I'm going to go home and throw away my leftover drugs, and then they don't, and because they don't remember, you know, they, they they weren't a different self state when they said that. But a lot of it also is... If I tell my therapist, quote, authority person, I'm going to get in trouble. You know, so I've had people actually who haven't told me that they've relapsed, and then they tell me maybe a week later, and we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so why did you think you, why do you think you took so long to tell me? And they, so often the response is, I didn't know, I was scared, I was ashamed, but now I know I'll never have to be ashamed again. Of, you know, I'll, I would tell you now because my attitude isn't mm-hmm. one of punishment. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, Miller found Bill Miller found that uh, when people did not perceive that they were going to be punished for talking about substance use, they told the truth about their substance use. Exactly, exactly. That's what I find as well. Precisely. Yeah. Right. Now I was going to mention because we're talking about evidence, and you know, it's also true some things are harder to study than others, mm-hmm. and I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great example of that is psychoanalysis versus cognitive behavioral. This cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral is relatively easy to manualize, uh, pretty easy to throw into a controlled study. Psychoanalysis is much more difficult, but I don't know if you saw this. There were some recent papers that came out a couple of years ago that actually showed for, 
for people with complex, uh, difficult uh, psychopathology, that they did better with the long-term psychoanalysis than they did with mm-hmm. the, the relatively short-term and structured cognitive behavioral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the Shedler, Jonathan Shedler research. Is that who you're thinking of? I I know there was some. I think yeah. that might have been it. There was a couple yeah. papers, but uh, yeah. yeah, I was looking yeah. at it yeah, recently. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, yes, and because I think, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it just is because so something is difficult to study doesn't, yeah, just because something's difficult to study doesn't mean it's not effective. Right, right, exactly. And it's also hard to manualize because so much of it is um, in the nonverbal relational part. So how do you manualize mm-hmm. that? How do you, how do you even measure a good relationship? You know, each is so individual. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I also think we do a lot more, um, we overlap a lot more than we know. I think that good cognitive behavioral therapy is probably more effective when based in a good therapeutic relationship and when there is some curiosity about what led to thinking this way, for example, some openness to understanding where it comes from and why it's no longer relevant. And certainly... Uh, analysts are working on changing how we think all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the the harm reduction therapists I know, you know, Andrew Tatarski, Pat Benning, and others, they completely mm-hmm. integrate the two because they find yep. the cognitive behavioral steps are so useful for the substance use. Mm-hmm. Yes, chart your drinks, count your drinks, make your drinking plan, etc., etc. They're and then the other parts, the psychoanalytic parts, are really great at getting at the underlying issues that are driving, you know, the mm-hmm. substance use in the first place. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think Pat and Andrew and Jeannie Little and I uh, all work very similarly. We do. I think we all say very much the same things when we write, and we all work very similarly. And we all base our work very much in relationship and curiosity in a kind of openness to finding out who our patient is and in doing a lot of very, very specific behavioral coaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Are there other topics you want to talk about or do you think we're um, time to close up? Uh, not that I can think of. Anything else that you wanted to? No, I think we covered the main point. So it's been great okay. having you as a guest on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great being here. Okay, and we're going to, uh, next week, we're going to have Matthew uh, Lebovitz, I think, doing this from memory now. Um, We're going to talk about some of the problems with the biological explanations of behaviors and how they can lead to depersonalization of people by their therapists. Uh, We'll see you all then. So, everyone, thank you, and see you next time.